hello and welcome to part two of our Halloween series. It's officially episode 25. Means so we're a quarter of the way to 100. I'm glad that we were thinking <laughs> the same exact thing. Oh, Lord. We're getting there, slowly but surely. Slowly but surely. So how are we doing? Uh, Besides I'm... having headaches for both of us. Yeah. <laughs> it's been one of those days. It's been one of those days. The kids wouldn't listen. I'm just, yeah. Yeah. So, we've got a, a doozy. We're hoping it'll be somewhat of a long episode. But, we're going to start with the true crime fact of the day. And if you remember, we talked about the Chicago 8 before. On October 29th of 1969, Bobby Seal of the Chicago 8 was in a courtroom on trial when he acted unruly enough to be gagged. Fun, fun. Following several outbursts, the judge ordered Chicago 8 defendant Bobby Seal gagged and chained to his chair during his trial. Well. Seal and his seven... Oh, wow. That'll just happen. <laughs> I <don't know. laughs> Oh, wow. One more time. Try that again. Seal and his seven fellow defendants, David Dillinger, Re- Rennie Davis, Thomas Hayden, Abby Hoffman, Jerry Rubin, Lee Weiner, and John Freund had been charged with conspiracy to cross state lines with the intent to cause a riot during the violent anti-war demonstrations in Chicago during the 1968 Democratic National Convention. Judge Julius Hoffman gave the order to gag seal after he repeatedly shouted accusations and insults at the judge and prosecution and disrupted the court proceedings. In November, seal's conduct forced the judge to try him separately. He was sentenced to 48 months in prison. 48 years? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 48 months in prison for 16 acts of contempt. Seal was then charged with killing a Black Panther Party informant in New Haven, Connecticut. And the contempt charges were eventually dismissed and the murder trial ended with a hung jury. Hmm. Well to be bound and gagged in a courtroom. You that, done fucked up, eh, Aaron? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's an understatement. <laughs> oh, fuck. You want to start or you want me to start? Um, I don't care. I don't either. Alright. So now we're going to move on to the long-awaited Halloween episode part two. Yeah, whoop, whoop. It's only been a week. so we're going to new york state to a home that could be classified as true crime related and paranormal related but we're going to go to ocean avenue not to be confused (laughs) i just have the lyrics going through my head (laughs) there's a place on ocean (laughs) avenue I mean, I do that now, but... Well, so do I, but <laughs> it just hit a little harder being a kid and not really understanding fully what that meant. Like, I'm still finding Fall Out Boy lyrics that yeah. meant one thing back then, and now they mean something completely different. <clears throat> so, Ocean Avenue was the home of one of the most 
treasured homes in the paranormal community. <laughs> 112 Ocean Avenue, to be exact. Why was this house so special? Because this 1927 spacious five-bedroom, three-bathroom Dutch colonial is not only where a mass murder occurred, but it was also haunted. Air Have you seen the new Amityville? You well, just gave it away. What? Oh, I did. <laughs> you asshole. <laughs> oh, well. I'll let it out. Since, you know, somebody decided to... I'm sorry. I got excited. 112 Ocean Avenue in Amityville, New York, was a perfect family sitting along the canal. The residents also had a swimming pool <laughs> as well as a boathouse. The home was purchased in 1965 by the DeFeo family. Mm. Hey. Now, no, I have not seen the new Amityville. <laughs> Sorry, I got real excited. I got ahead of myself. <laughs> you can at least let me announce I'm what I'm doing first. No, the um, I wouldn't say it's the new Amity one, but fuck, what was her name? Bella Thorne. I think I've seen it. That's fucked up. Yeah. Whoa, just thinking about it makes me. So. We're going to start with dad. No? Is that dad? Son. Son. Okay. Uh, Ronald Joseph DeFeo Jr. was born September 26th of 1951 to Ronald and Louise DeFeo. Ronald Jr. had a rough start. His family was pretty normal to everybody on the outside. Dad worked at a, Bu- a Buick. I'm just trying to say Buellership. <laughs> Fucking A. Worked at a Buick dealership. And mom stayed home with five kids. And he was the oldest out of five. Ronald's father had a temper. He was a successful... He was successful as a car salesman, but that was in large part because of his domineering, overpowering... Get it together. I'm having a stroke, okay? (laughs) You said it was going to happen... At some point tonight, and it's happening within, like, the first five minutes. It's fine. God damn it. I quit already. (laughs) He frequently fought with his wife and was known to frequently lash out at his kids. Ronald Jr. was overweight, so in addition to his trouble at home, he was frequently picked on in school. An unhappy kid all around, he began to lash out at those around him, including his father. Obviously, his parents became concerned, and this further exasperated with the usage of LSD and heroin. That's a not bueno combination. No. That's like seeing the dragons in the kitchen. Ugh. But then not being able to do anything about it. No, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> I, for legal purposes, I do not know if that is true. <laughs> I've never done anything like that. But, legal purposes. Oh, God I would not actually know. I've just seen the memes on Facebook, okay? Ronald's family did take him in for psychological evaluation and to speak with counselors, but that didn't really do anything. And instead, they resorted to offering incentives for good behavior. Unfortunately, the young man used the cash for less than ideal investments, and he began to use heroin again. Ultimately, he was expelled from school. However, his parents were still determined that rewards would cure him. 
he was given a position at the Buick dealership. His father paid him weekly, regardless of whether he showed up for work or not. And of course, the paychecks went to buy more heroin. It also bought a few guns, and he began to act strangely. Ronald's relationship with his father was strained. The two just didn't get along, and Ronald Sr. was over and haughty, yet seemed to be clueless as to how to raise his children. His son took advantage of this and continued to take his father's money, and when that wasn't enough, he began to embezzle money from the dealership. He began to use his guns. He threatened one friend with a rifle on a hunting trip. Then he attempted to shoot his father. Fan-fucking-tastic. Ronald Sr. and his wife were in an argument, and Ronald pulled a shotgun on him. Despite the fact that Ronald pulled the trigger, the gun did not fire. And shortly after that incident, the dealer was caught on Ronald's embezzlement. The police came to question Ronald at work, and the man was very unhappy, to say the least. At that point, he threatened to kill his father, and nobody believed him. So... Shortly after all of that, now we're going to get on to the murders. Well, now they're going to fucking believe them. <laughs> on the night of November 13th, 1974, using a 35 caliber Marlin 336C rifle, 24-year-old Ronald DeFeo Jr. shot the other six members of his family as they slept at 112 Ocean evidence. The victims were his parents, aged 43, which is weird, like both of them were 43 at the time, and his four siblings, Don, age 18, Allison, age 13, Mark, age 12, and John Matthew, age 9. (coughs) Physical evidence leads to suggest that Louise, his mother, and her daughter Allison were both awake at the time of their deaths. According to Suffolk County Police, the victims were all found laying face down in bed. Around mm-hmm. 6.30 p.m. later that night, DeFeo entered Henry's Bar in Amityville, Long Island, New York, and declared, You've got to help me. I think my mother and father are shot. DeFeo and a small group of people went to the home, which was located near the bar, surprise, and found that DeFeo's parents were dead inside the house. One of the group, DeFeo's friend Joe Jesuit, made an emergency call to the police department who searched the house and found that six members of the family were shot dead in their beds. He was taken to a local police station for his own protection after police officers at the scene of the crime that the killings had been carried out by a mob hitman, mm-hmm. Louis Fellini. However, an interview at the station soon exposed serious inconsistencies with his version of the events. The following day, he confessed to carrying out the killings himself, and Fellini, the alleged hitman, had an alibi proving he was out of state at the time of the killings. DeFeo told detectives, Once I started, I just couldn't stop. It went so fast. That's kind of what happens when you shoot someone. Yeah. Just saying. I mean, adrenaline kicks in and you're just ready to go. I would assume. He admitted that he had taken a bath and redressed and detailed where he had discarded crucial evidence 
such as bloodstained clothes. 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 <laughs> Both of us can't talk tonight. <laughs> the Marlin rifle excuse me, and cartridges before going to work as usual. Like I've said before, all six of the victims were found face down in their beds with no sign of a struggle. The police investigation concluded that the rifle had not been fitted with a sound suppressor and found evidence of sedatives. DeFeo admitted during his interrogation that he had drugged his, drugged, <laughs> had drugged his family. <clears throat> the autopsy report indicated otherwise. Per the doctor, we did extensive toxicology, not only the blood or on the blood and the urine, but on all of the organs we removed, and it turned up zero. There was nothing in their bodies. Mm-hmm. Neighbors did not report hearing any gunshots being fired, and those who were awake at the time of the murder simply heard the family sheepdog, Shaggy, barking. A thirty-five caliber <laughs> makes a really loud noise. That's a big kid gun. For sure. Like, I've been around rifles that are that caliber. Not necessarily that one. But they're loud. On to the trial. DeFeo's trial began on October 14th of 1975. Him and his defense lawyer, William Weber, mounted an affirmative defense of insanity, with DeFeo claiming that he had killed his family in self-defense, because he heard their voices plotting against him. Sure. This is the start of him going cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs. Well, I think it started <laughs> when he started using LSD and heroin. But... Well, there's that dude. The insanity plea was supported by the psychiatrist for the defense, Daniel Schwartz, and the psychiatrist for the prosecution, Dr. Harold Zolan. Maintained that although DeFeo was a user of heroin and LSD, he had antisocial personality disorder and was aware of his actions at the time. Not mad about that. That name makes me think of Zoltan and it. (laughs) (laughs) Fuck. Dude, where's my car? (laughs) All I can think of is the the movie Big with Tom Hanks. Hmm? Oh, the. The thing, the machine. Uh, is it Zoltar? I think so. I think you're right. Like they had one of those machines in one of the shops in South Carolina we went to, mm-hmm. and I'm like, oh my god, I've never seen one in person. And Marcus is looking at me like a crazy person because <clears throat> I'm like, hey, hey, we gotta do it, we gotta do it. We didn't do it. Well, that's poopy. On November 21st of 1975, DeFeo was found guilty on six counts of second-degree murder. And on December 24th, Judge Thomas started to six sentences of 25 years to life. After his conviction, DeFeo gave several varying accounts of how the killings were carried out. And in a 1986 interview for Newsday, DeFeo claimed his sister Dawn killed their father and then... Their distraught mother killed all of his siblings, apparently with a 38 caliber Smith & Wesson revolver, before he killed his mother. He stated that he took the blame because he was afraid to say anything negative about his mother to her father, Michael Brigant. That's what we're going to go with. And his father's uncle out of fear that they would kill him. His father's uncle was Peter DeFeo, and 
He was in the Genovese crime family. We'll yes. go with that. In this interview, DeFeo also asserted that he was married at the time of the murders to a woman named Geraldine Gates, with whom he was living in New Jersey, and that his mother phoned to ask him to return to Amityville to break up a fight between Don and their father. Subsequently, he drove to Amityville with Geraldine's brother, Richard Ramondo. Ramondo? Sure. Who was with him at the time of the murders and could verify his story completely. DeFeo was held at the Sullivan, <laughs> Sullivan Correctional Facility in Fallsburg, New York. And in 1990, he filed a 440 motion, a proceeding to have his vacated. In support of this motion, DeFeo asserted that Don and an unknown assailant who fled the house before he could get a look at him killed their parents and Don subsequently killed their siblings. He said the only person he killed was Don and that it was by accident as they struggled over the rifle. Again, he asserted he was married to Geraldine and that her brother was with him at the time of the murders. An affidavit from Richard Romando was submitted to the court and it was asserted that he could not be located to testify in person. Evidence was submitted to the court by the Suffolk County District Attorney's Office suggesting that Richard did not exist and that Geraldine Gates was living in upstate New York, married to someone else at the time of the murders. Geraldine did not testify at this hearing because the authorities had already confronted her about the false claims, and in 1992 secured a statement under oath where she admitted Ramonda was fictitious and that she did not actually marry DeFeo until 1980, in of the filing of the 440 motion. Judge Stark denied the motion, writing, I find... The testimony of the defendant overall to be false and fabricated. His testimony that during the fall of 1974, he was married and lived with his wife and child at Long Branch, New Jersey, is incredible and not worthy of belief. He produced no corroborating evidence in this regard. Another reason for my disbelief of defendant's testimony is demonstrated by consideration of several portions of the trial testimony. He signed a lengthy written statement describing in detail his activities in the statement, he said that he lived with his family at 112 Ocean Avenue in Amityville and that he worked with his father, that he usually went to and from work with his father, that he was ill and stayed home from work on November 12, 1974, that he was on probation for having stolen an outboard engine and had an appointment to see her in Amityville on that very afternoon. The defendant's girlfriend, Mindy Weiss, testified that she had began dating the defendant in June 1974 and was with him frequently that summer and fall. Stark further declared the defendant's testimony that he did not shoot and kill the members of his family is likewise incredible and not worthy of belief. Okay, so now we're going to go into the aftermath of the case. <clears throat> On November 30th, 2000, DeFeo met with Rick Asuna, the author of The Night the DeFeos Died, which was published in 2002. God. Makes me feel old. I was, <laughs> I was nine. If that makes you feel any better, it doesn't. <laughs> According to Asuna, they spoke for about six hours. However, in a letter to the radio show host Lou Gentile, DeFeo denied giving Rick Asuna information that could be used in his book, claiming that he immediately left the interview and did not speak to Asuna about anything substantial. According to Rick DeFeo claimed that he had committed the murders with his sister Dawn and two friends, Augie Danchnik, 
De Janeiro and Bobby Kelsky. If I butcher these names and you know how they're pronounced, <laughs> go ahead and tell me. Uh, <laughs> out of desperation, because his parents had plotted to kill him. Allegedly, DeFeo claimed that after a furious row with his father, he and his sister planned to kill their parents, and that Don murdered the children in order to eliminate them as witnesses. He said that he was enraged on discovering his sister's actions, knocked her unconscious onto her bed, and shot her in the head. Police found traces, traces, <laughs> shit, I can't talk, <laughs> of unburned gunpowder on Don's knife, which DeFeo alleged to prove that she discharged the firearm. However, at trial, the ballistics as expert, Alfred Delapena, testified that the unburned gunpowder is discharged through the muzzle of a weapon, indicating that she was in proximity to the muzzle of the weapon when it was discharged, and not that she fired the weapon. He reiterated this on an A&E Amityville documentary that is exclusively discussed in Will Savives, Mentally Ill in Amityville, Saviv had an expert evaluate Delapena's assessment, and the expert confirmed that he was correct. Moreover, the examiner found nothing to indicate that Dawn had been in a struggle. The bullet wound was the only fresh mark on her body. Joe Nickel notes that given the frequency with which DeFeo has changed his story over the years, any new claims from him regarding the events that took place on that night of the murders should be approached with caution. Most of the claims made in Rick Asuna's book are sourced to DeFeo's ex-wife, Geraldine Gates. While in the 1986 interview with Newsday, she asserted she married DeFeo in 1974. In Asuna's book, she alleges they married in 1970. Their 1993 divorce case says they met in 1985, married in 1989, and divorced in 1993. That was very short lived. Yeah. But when you're locked up for most of it, Rick Asuna's book was adapted into a docudrama titled Shattered Hopes The True Story of the Amityville Murders. The film, released on December 16, 2011, was written, directed, and produced by Ryan Katzenbach and featured narration by veteran actor Ed Asner. And it examines all aspects of the Amityville case with a strong focus on the DeFeo family and the events surrounding their murders. DeFeo died at the age of 69 in custody at the Albany Medical Center on March 12, 2021. Oh. Official cause of death has yet to be determined because COVID backlogs, you know. DeFeo had multiple parole hearings that I could not find the dates for. However, all of which were denied. Shocker. I mean, I'm not mad at that. So we're going to move to the Lutz family now. The home at 112 Ocean Avenue remained empty until the Lutz family purchased it just 13 months after the killings for a whopping 88 grand, which is cheap seeing as it is placed on the canal. Can you... Okay. I would not... Obviously, this gained media attention. Yes. I would not want to buy that. <laughs> well, we'll give it another. 
I don't want to. (laughs) (laughs) The realtor, in full disclosure, informed George and Kathleen about the murders, which had taken place there. When the Lutz family moved into the home, all of the furniture from the DeFeo family remained intact from the night of the murders and was purchased as part of their mortgage agreement for $400. Fuck that. Yeah. George and Kathy married in July of 1975 and each had their own homes, but they wanted to start fresh with a new property. Kathy had three children from a previous marriage, Daniel, nine, Christopher, seven, and Melissa, five. They had, they also owned a crossbreed Malamute Labrador, I want him, dog named Harry. A friend of George Lutz learned about the history of the house and insisted on having it blessed. At that time, George was a non-practicing Methodist and had no experience of what this would entail. Kathy was a non-practicing Catholic and explained the process. George knew a Catholic priest who agreed to carry out the house blessing. This, there really isn't much on the family itself. However, there is plenty about the phenomenon that occurred in the mere 28 days they spent inside of the residence. 28 days. 28 days. This only lasted in the house for 28 days before moving out terrified because of what they claimed was supernatural phenomenon. George Lutz would wake up around 3.15 a.m. every morning to visit the boathouse. It was the exact time of the DeFeo family killings. There were instances that the house was swarming with flies, even though it was December in New York. Bye! So you would think, you know, it being like super frigid, super cold, there wouldn't be flies. <laughs> Unless there's something dead in the house. Right. And even then, they would be very, very slow. They wouldn't move very much. <sighs> so, on to Kathy's experience. Kathleen Lutz had reported vivid nightmares from the murders, even saying she felt embraced by an unseen force at one point. Nope. George and Kathy both claim to have seen a demon with half of its head missing. You, you look deep in thought over there. <laughs> I have a lot of questions. Why is half his head missing? I don't know. George would repeatedly wake up to the sound of the front door slamming. However, no one else in the house would ever hear it, and it would be closed when he would go check. Kathy was reported by George to have to have been levitated off of their bed two feet and received what red welts on her chest. Nobody, nope, nope. I'm out. Bye. Giant cloven hoof prints were reportedly seen in the snow outside of the home on New Year's Day. Nope. Green <laughs> slime, for lack of a better term, on these sites that I use, which, you know, we would know as ectoplasm. I was going to say. Oozed. From the walls in the hallway, a crucifix on the wall would repeatedly spin upside down. They'd go and correct it. It flipped. There was even an account of George watching Kathy transform into a 90-year-old woman. Their five-year-old daughter, Missy, even is said to have befriended an entity she called Jody, a demonic red-eyed pig that George and Daniel stated to have seen. I'm sorry. It's funny. (laughs) Why is it a pig? Why? Okay. Go ahead. 
good to me. I mean, it could be. Okay, so hear me out. Demons are <sighs> reported to be, you know, like from hell. Maybe it just had soft nose and it looked like a pig. Because if you think about it, the way that skeletons are, the skull only has like that fraction of your bone right here before it goes to cartilage on your nose. I need to know if we're talking like full on pig, like curly Q tail, or like half man, half pig kind of looking thing. I mean, that would explain the hoof prints. Because pigs have hooves. Yeah. It's not like they have, they have like the fork ones. Mm-hmm. I have a lot of questions. Continue. Anyway. <laughs> the priest who was hired by the family to bless the house was also a lawyer and a judge of the Catholic court. He was also a psychotherapist who lived at the local Sacred Heart Rectory. He per- arrived to perform the blessing while George and Kathy were unpacking their belongings on the afternoon of December 18th, 1975. He went into the building to carry out the rites. When he flicked the first holy water and began to pray, he heard a masculine voice demand that he get out. (laughs) Okay, bye. (laughs) (laughs) When leaving the house, the priest did not mention this incident to either George or Kathy. On December 24th, 1975, the priest called George Lutz and advised him to stay out of the second floor room where he had heard the mysterious voice, the former bedroom of Mark and John Matthew DeFeo that Kathy planned on using as a sewing room, but the call was cut short by static. Following visit to the house, the priest allegedly developed a high fever and blisters on his hands, similar to stigmata. At first, George and Kathy experienced nothing unusual in the house, talking about their experiences. Subsequently, they reported that it was as if they were living or were each living in a different house. Oh. By mid-January 1976, after another attempt at a house blessing by George and Kathy, they experienced what would turn out to be their final night in the house. The Lesses declined to give a full account of the events that took place on this occasion, describing them as too frightening. After getting in touch with the priest, Melissa's decided to take some belongings and stay at Kathy's mother's house in nearby Deer Park, New York, until they had sorted out all the problems with the house. They claimed that the phenomena followed them there. The scene of a book that we will go into later, describing greenish-black slime coming up the staircase towards them. <laughs> Flubber? <laughs> oh, Demonic flubber. <laughs> On January 14th, 19th, George and Kathy Lutz, with their three children and their dog, Harry, left 112 Ocean Avenue, leaving all of their possessions behind. The next day, a mover arrived to remove the possessions to send to the Lutzes, and he reported no paranormal phenomena while inside the house. Mm-hmm. See, this is where... So, while I was doing the notes for this... <clears throat> There's like eight different accounts of what happened to oh, sure. from the family. Just from the family itself. Yeah. And then you have, you know, the Warrens that stepped in, and we'll talk about them later. You've got multi 
or multiple news outlets reporting different things. The kids, aside from Daniel, don't remember any of it. He was the oldest, wasn't he? I think so. Well, how many things do you remember from when you were five? Well, I remember running away. (laughs) (laughs) Oh no, my mom thought I had ran away and I was sleeping underneath all of my blankets, like in a blanket fort on my bed. I was dead to the world asleep. Didn't hear her yelling for me, nothing. She called the cops because she thought I had ran away. So, speaking of different sides to the story, this is Daniel's side of the story, their oldest son. After 37 years, one of the original Amityville Horror children has decided to finally break the silence disregarding (laughs) regarding his experience at the haunted house. Daniel, who was 8, sorry, he was 10, on January 4th of 1976, when his family fled the house, still insists that the family was menaced by the spirits in the home. Daniel now blames the evil presence of his, on his stepfather, George, a man whose account. Occult? I can't read, apparently. I need glasses now more than ever. <laughs> a man whose occult dabbling, says Daniel, opened the gateway to dark forces he couldn't control. Daniel said that his father had been involved with Satanism and magic even before they moved into the suburban neighborhood on the south shore of Long Island. He recalled the family's bookshelves lined with books on the occult and demonism. Daniel says he knew something was off with the house within hours of moving in. Taking a box upstairs, he found his room filled with flies, despite the fact that it was the dead of winter. He swatted hundreds of them and went to fetch his mother. When she returned with him to the room, there was not a fly in sight. That's when the confusion, that's when my confusion started, he said. He still recalls the family dog going crazy, nearly strangling itself with its lead as their garage door shook and slammed up and down. Daniel recalls a kitchen window mysteriously slamming shut as his mother treated his injured hand and then watched, then watching as an invisible spirit slid a chair back and sat down, leaving impressions on the padded seat. Fuck that. He's levitating beds, footboards, and headboards slamming into the ceilings were not imagined. He also remembers during their 28-day stay, the family experienced cold spots in the house, odd smells of perfume permeating the air, and the stank smell of excrement that would disappear as quickly as it manifested, jolting sounds and booms in the middle of the night, and the glowing eyes of a demonic pig-like creature (laughs) appear through the window and left cloven-shaped footprints in the snow. I need to know if this is a legit pig, or if it's a man pig. (laughs) I need to know. Man bear pig. Puppy baby monkey. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, God. I could have went the rest of my life without that. Oh, God. He remembers how the activity in the home each night at 3.15 a.m., which is the precise time police believe the prior resident residents were slaughtered by their son in the middle of the night. He remembers his sister Kathy waking up screaming from visit 
I said mother. You said sister. Well, I'm pretty sure I meant to put Missy and type Kathy. I was, you know, doing the notes for these when I was working with my boss. So, you know. Okay. Here. <laughs> he remembers his sister, Missy, waking up screaming from vivid nightmares. To... No, it has to be his mom because Kathy was the one that I'm blaming that shit show. Okay. <laughs> Fine. His mother. He remembers Kathy waking up screaming from vivid nightmares of the murder, which took place in her room. After her jumping after old invisible arms embrace her and her confusion as mysterious red welts appeared from nowhere on her chest. It had to be mom. He recalls the green gelatin-like flubber oozing from the walls. I think that's what I'm going to refer to ectoplasm as for the rest of my life. The living room crucifix rotating until it was upside down and the clear bite marks that appeared on his father's ankles right before their eyes. Most everything portrayed in the movie was accurate, he says, but much more terrifying than any movie could portray. His accounts are almost the exact same as the family's, however, the other children didn't believe any of it. I, I don't know how much I believe either. But... With... So, I don't know. Because everybody has their own account of what happened. Yes. Sometimes they merge, sometimes they don't. However, everybody was in a different room. Yep. Yeah. And we're, 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 we're going to get to it. Obviously, with something this big that attracts media attention and everything else, you're going to have a lot of people trying to make money off of it. <coughs> the Warrens. <laughs> well, <laughs> tell me how you really feel. I have numerous times. I know. Um, so, shortly after the family left the house, a book editor at Prentice Hall introduced George and Kathy Lutz to Jay Anson. Jay Anson was a professional writer who had published a number of behind-the-scenes and making-of books about films and film personalities in the 1970s. Though the Lutzes did not work directly with Anson, they did submit about a 45 hours of tape-reported recollections to him. 45 hours. That's a lot. Of events that happened over 28 days. Oh, true. Like, that's, that's a lot. Um, yeah. <laughs> he then used the tapes as the basis for his book. That book, The Amityville Horror, was published in 1977, and it has sold more than 11 million copies in the years since. Also a lot. Yes. The best-selling Amityville Horror book was made into a movie starring James Brolin and Margot Kidder. Anson also wrote the original screenplay. However, the producers passed on it and hired a more experienced screenwriter, Sandor Stern, at the time of its release in 1979, the Amityville Horror was the most successful independent movie in history, grossing more than $86 million in 1979 dollars in the U.S. box office revenue alone, as well as millions more in video sales, syndication, and the like. The remake of the original time starring Ryan Reynolds released in 2006 and made a great deal more. I don't think I've seen that one. 
I don't. I think I did. Now I'm going to have to look that. So it was released in 2005. It is a Metro Goldwyn Mayer film. And it starred Ryan Reynolds, Melissa George, and Jesse James. Hmm. It is the Michael Bay version. And of course, it's a Michael Bay film, so it's going to make it. And then you have the original one in, from 1979. But Moving on, John G. Jones met George and Kathy Lutz through mutual friends in California in the early 80s, and soon after they met, the Lutzes asked John to tell the continuing story of what happened after they left the infamous house in Amityville. John agreed. His first book, Amityville Horror 2, was published in 1983 by Warner Books. Within a week, it was on the New York Times bestseller list. Soon after, it became an international bestseller. Other highly successful Amityville horror volumes followed. Because Amityville was a town in New York State long before it gained its dark and entirely undeserved record. The normal trademark and copyright protections to the Amityville story often didn't apply. Any book, TV program, or movie could use the word Amityville in its title to imply some connection to the Lutz story or the blockbuster film, and the list of unauthorized horror stories grew every year and continues to grow. The net effect has buried the real story in layer and layer and layer and layer of error, speculation, and outright lies. The trick is to tell one from the other. Good luck with that. Yeah. So, Obviously, Anson didn't get it 100% right. Like any storyteller, he embellished some scenes, omitted others, and simply made some mistakes in his version of the story, even though it was based on the Lutz's own tapes. And these tapes have never actually been released, and there's some doubt if they actually exist at all. <laughs> Inaccuracies and inconsistencies in dates on a precise sequence of events, even the weather itself, can be chalked up to poor recollection. A lack of fact-checking and dramatic license. Amity Horror, The Return. What is that supposed to be? Amityville Horror, The Return. Cover? Cover? Space? A final? <laughs> Amityville Horror, The Return Cover, a final complete version of what happened to the Lutz family after they fled Amityville, will be published in 2015. Will be published in 2015. Was published. <laughs> My bad. Jones's The Amityville Horror 2 and subsequent volumes that touched on the lives of the Lutzes have been out of print for years. It is derived from Jones' lifetime of experience and contact with the Lutz family, and now that George and Kathy have both passed away, it will serve as the final and definitive word on what happened and how it ended. The Lutzes did not dream the whole thing up, with an attorney back in 1976. In fact, there was an attorney deeply involved in the DeFeo case and later in lawsuits brought by the Lutzes and by the attorney himself, where he claimed that George and Kathy concocted the story, though he offered no contemporaneous notes or agreements to prove his allegations. The Lutzes denied this repeatedly and consistently, though the attorney continued to make his unsupported claims for quite some time. 
George and Kathy stood by their story for their entire lives. This much is true. George and Kathy Lutz never changed their story. Until, until their deaths, they maintained what was in the book was mostly true, allowing for the errors and embellishment mentioned above. In June of 1979, George and Kathy took a lie detector test concerning the events in the house, and they passed. Even 25 years after their time in Amityville in a documentary on the History Channel, George said, quote, I believe this has stayed alive for 25 years because it's a true story. It doesn't mean that everything that has ever been said about it is true. It certainly is not a hoax. It's real easy to call something a hoax. I wish it was. It's not. This is the central difficulty for proving or debunking the Lutz's story. And virtually all the events that the Lutz's described are private matters, matters of perception and nightmare. They cannot be proven or disproven objectively and they can only be believed or disbelieved. It's pure speculation, but it's probably worth noting that the whole field of true horror stories that is such a lucrative industry today simply didn't exist in 1976. The Exorcist, a novelist published as fiction, not fact, had only appeared a couple of years before in Poltergeist, Poltergeist and the subsequent array of modern-day hauntings that would become a profitable subcategory with the horror genre were years in the future. In fact, the Amityville Horror's unexpected success was key in creating that subgenre. It would have been a feat of near paranormal presence to think that a bestseller and blockbuster movie could be based on this kind of subject matter at that time. At the time, the Lutzes made their recordings, especially from a couple with no real experience in media relations, publishing, or film production. It's certainly not possible, but it is highly unlikely. The Lutzes did not get rich from the books and movies. Yes, they received a portion of their royalties or licensing fees for some of the books and a few movies, but it was never a great deal of money, and it faded quickly. After a life of comfort and stability, the Lutzes, as a family and as individuals, struggled financially for the rest of their lives. Amityville didn't make them rich, not in the beginning. I lost my spot. How did I lose my spot? The house is not built on an Indian burial ground. At least the losses never claimed it was. Many of the unauthorized books and films speculated about power spots, burial grounds, 17th century warlocks, or other even more unprovable histories for the property. None of them were put forth by the losses, and none of them have a strong basis in provable historical fact, just as the Amityville Historical Society. The family that purchased Ocean from the Lutzes claimed they experienced no supernatural events of any kind, and that is consistent with the Lutzes story. The house remained empty for months after the Lutzes left, but when the... Cromartie? Sure. When the Cromartie family bought it in 1977 for a thousands less than the Lutzes purchase price, they reported no damaged fixtures, no strange smells, or apparitions. However, from the beginning, the Lutzes claimed that the force they encountered in their home followed them when they left and continued to plague them whenever they fled for years after. They first made these statements before the house was sold. So two interpretations are equally possible. There was never any evil source in the house in Amityville or it left with the Lutzes. Either way, the house itself would be safe and quiet after January 1977. By the way, the house has been renovated and the address changed to discourage the constant stream of gawkers. The whole facade has been altered and windows have long since been replaced. Every movie or television program that shows the house has used 
alternative sites or built facades to resemble the original house and the people of Amityville do not welcome ghost hunters or fans of the paranormal. I can't say I blame them. Well, I mean, there was that one time that Zach Bagans went to the house. Shocker. Anyway, <clears throat> so now we're going to go to my favorite part. The Warren's involvement. That's why I read that last part, because I wanted hence, you to do this one. <laughs> hence my sarcasm. All right. So, as Lorraine Warren's most famous case by far is their investigation of the home, which was the subject of the Amityville Horror. Warrens were two of nine people who investigated the home. Even now, years later, the Amityville investigation is still their most requested, or was still their most requested lecture topic. Over the years, rumors have abounded, which claim to prove the Amityville case is a fraud. Surprise! How many of these rumors started and how they came to be so famous, ubiquitous, is unclear. What is clear is that the Warrens saw the house for themselves and experienced some phenomena which occurred. They have photographs and reports which show remarkable proof of the existence of very remarkable phenomena in that house. How the Warrens became involved. And Lorraine Warren met with a priest, which was Father Pecorero. And the lessons when they first called the priest to come in and investigate and do the blessing on the house. The Lusses were living with Kathy's mom in Deer Park because they were too afraid to go back to the house. They were all but afraid to even speak of the phenomena. They'd left all of their furniture and possessions behind, not daring to return to move it out. It simply wasn't worth the risk. Sorry, but if I had shit in the house, I'd go get it. I don't know. <laughs> if what happened to them happened to me, I would probably burn the motherfucker down. That's yeah. <laughs> just yeah. me. So the first time the Warrens went to the house, it was with an anchor man from Channel 5 News. Shocker. A professor from Duke University and of the American Society for Psychic Research. That first day was horrifying. Lorraine received nonstop clear visual and clear audio messages about the phenomena which had occurred. Which I'm not saying she's not a clairvoyant. I think there's a line. But there's no proof of this stuff happening. And that's given their history that's where I'm kind of like eh but did it really happen? But did it though? So, anxious to see for himself whether or not the phenomena was real, Ed, who normally experiences little clairvoyant feelings at all, went into the cellar. The cellar is typically where evil spirits spend their days, according to the warns. And Ed, therefore, felt it would be the best place for him to start. Yes, because demons just hang out in the basement and play yeah. cards all day. <laughs> Despite his usual immunity from witnessing phenomena, 
Ed saw shadows along with thousands of pinpoints of light. These shadows attempted to push him to the ground and used religious resistance and commanded the evil spirits to leave. He immediately got the sensation of something attempting to lift him off the ground. And he knew then that this was really a house of evil. Although he knew this was a serious case, he had no idea how severe it really was. And he was never so seriously affected in any case before or after the Amityville Horror case. Lorraine's experiences. Lorraine was frightened even before she entered the house. She had contacted some priest friends in advance and asked them to accompany her in spirit to the house. She took relics of her Padre Pio, which she received in a letter from a total stranger earlier in the week. As she went to the stairs to go to, to the second floor landing, she felt as if there was a huge force of rushing water against her and the atmosphere around her was solidifying. Marvin Scott on the second floor. On the second floor, Lorraine went into the sewing room. Marvin Scott, the Channel 5 anchorman, told Lorraine, I hope that this is as close to hell as I ever get as they went into Missy's room. Lorraine immediately, clairvoyantly, knew that it was Missy's room and that it had the same furniture as it had when the DeFeo girls were murdered. Wait a minute. What? So they had their children, knowing what happened there, they had their children sleeping on the same fucking mattress where somebody's... I mean, they could have switched mattresses. True, but still. But the same furniture? I would have moved it all out. I would have burnt it. It would have been bonfire material. Well, yeah. <laughs> I mean, according to Sam and Dean, that's what you're supposed to do to get rid of stuff that ties people to. Well, whatever. You burn shit. You burn the bones. You burn everything. Fire. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways. Um, Mr. Lutz had let his children sleep in the DeFeo children's deathbeds. So apparently they didn't mm. switch mattresses. And I mm. I have a problem with that. I have a problem. In the master bedroom, one wall was all mirrors. Nope. Mm. Lorraine sat on the bed where the DeFeo parents had been shot. They were sleeping in the bed too? Only the mattress on the bed had been changed. The feeling in the rooms was that of absolute horror, and going from room to room did not dissipate the feeling at all. One just seemed more horrible than the next. Once she was downstairs again, she was asked to do something she had never wanted to do after entering the house. She was asked to communicate with the spirits in the house and ask what really happened. All of the investigators were in the room. The investigator from Duke University actually passed out cold from fear. Two of the other investigators complained of heart palpitations and had to rest on the floor. The house seemed to have the most dire effect on men. Mary Pasquarella, the director of a prominent psych psychic research group, in New actually became so ill that she had to be taken outside, and from that moment forward, she never entered the house again. Ed and Lorraine Warren left at 1 a.m. Both were so affected that they vowed never to go back into that house again, but they did, and the Amityville horror story was born. Shocker. Once again, 
the Warrens ended up making money off of someone who had some type of paranormal anomaly happening in their home. If that's what it actually was. I've said it once. I'll say it again. Anything involving the Warrens has me extremely skeptical. And you're about to find out why. So obviously there's some kind of hoax that people have floating around. Later, George and Kathy Lutz and William Weber, the DeFeo's defense attorney, created a huge scam that they foisted on an innocent public, which in turn spawned more scams and lawsuits. And after all this, we should be calling the case Scamityville. In her book, The Encyclopedia of Ghosts and Spirits, Rosemary Ellen wrote that Kathy and George Lutz, now both deceased, and their three children, Daniel, Christopher, and Melissa, bought and moved into the DeFeo's house on December 18th of 1975, knowing it was the scene of a grisly mass murder. They then allegedly experienced a supernatural phenomenon that we talked about earlier, and the family left the house on January 14th of 1976. Jay Anson, who never spent time in the house, wrote the book, The Amityville Horror, and Prentice Hall first published the book in 1977 and touted it as nonfiction. According to... Lloyd Auerbach's title, book titled ESP, Hauntings, and Poltergeist. After the Lutzes moved out, the American Society for Psych- Psychical? I don't like that word. Research. <laughs> Dr. Carlos Osis and Alex Tenos of the, and the, I don't like that word. Psycho Research Foundation? I don't like it. Uh, Jerry... Salfin and Keith Harari investigated. Ultimately, they found the stories were fake. One clue from seeing a sample of Ronald's handwriting on a contract for profits from a book and film. Reporters from the National Enquirer, CBS, and self-proclaimed parapsychologists Lorraine and the late Ed Warren were also present. The Warrens would later base their claim to fame on the investigation of Amityville. According to Lenat, after the Lutzes fled from the house, George called a respected parapsychologist, the late Dr. Stephen Kaplan, to ask him to investigate the house. Kaplan doubted George's veracity during the initial conversation, and his reading of the Amityville Horror confirmed his doubts. Thus led to his writing the Amityville Horror Conspiracy, co-authored <coughs> by his wife. I can't. It's, it's over. I'm done. By his wife, Roxanne. The Catholic Diocese of Rockville Center and the Amityville Police Department also debunked the scam. After the Lutzes repudiated some parts of their fantastic story. The best piece of evidence, George Weber admitted in a radio interview and to the press that the Amityville haunting was a hoax concocted to make money. Oh, shocker. Well, there's that. Jim and Barbara... Cromarty, subsequent owners of the house, experienced nothing paranormal, but curiosity seekers invaded their privacy because of the book's notoriety. The new owners changed the house's facade and address in an attempt to protect their privacy and sued Prentice Hall and Jay Anson. They received an out-of-court settlement. Father Ralph Pecorero or Menesco in or Mancuso, in the book, sued Prentice Hall and the Lutzes for distorting his involvement in the haunting and invasion of privacy, eventually settling, settling out of court. 
Parapsychologist Anita Gregory sued for libel and won. Weber sued for his share of the profits from the book and original movie. Presiding U.S. District Court Judge Jack Weinstein said evidence showed that the Lutzes were acting in a way consistent with having a book published. This was another out-of-court settlement. The Lutzes sued Weber on the basis that this was not a hoax, but was reality. They lost. Hmm. The original book indicated more books and movies, courtesy of the Warrens and others, including author Hans Holzer, who purported the Amityville horror was real, perpetuating the According to William Graham's article, Hans Holzer, Ghost Hunter, dies at 89. Holzer and medium Ethel Johnson Myers were investigating the house in 1977 and alleged that she channeled a Shinnecock American Indian chief's spirit who said the house stood on ancient Indian burial grounds. Holzer, in his book, Ghosts, True Encounters with the World Beyond, as the a white person dug up the skeleton and there was fighting. Wait, between the person and the skeleton? Mm-hmm. Oh. According to Holzer, there's still anger and when a white man is there, he's a vehicle for possession, like DeFeo Jr. Gillies, Billy's encyclopedia entry refutes this, however, saying that the tribe didn't bury people there because they believed demons infested the site. While experts debunked the Amityville scam beyond any reasonable doubt, unfortunately, due to those who perpetuated to make money, there are still some people who continue to believe it was a genuine case of haunting and possession. I'm not going to tell you what to believe. Because part of me, until doing all of this research, believed it. Did they probably experience some things? Yes. Yes. The flubber thing? I don't know that I believe that. <laughs> I don't think I believe that either. The. I think we've all had some. Waking up at three fifteen. Yes, I could see that happening. Yeah. The red welts appearing out of nowhere. I can see that happening. The man pig thing? Probably not. Yeah. That's just an imaginary friend from a five-year-old kid. Exactly. They chose to put their own twist on it. Yeah, I don't... We all love how I feel about the worms. Now I have to make a haunted flubber sticker. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, you do. You have to name it Ecto Flubber. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Fuck. Uh, anyways. Excellent. So, like I said, <laughs> I'm not going to tell you what to believe and what not to believe, but there's too much evidence against them from the Catholic Church, from priests. There's even lawsuits from a priest. As being a former Catholic, I, I wouldn't necessarily believe them either. I'm just saying. Yeah, I don't. I'm agnostic for a reason. I believe that there's God. But do I practice one faith? No. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah. Um, 
there's believe like we've all had weird stuff happen. We have weird stuff happen at home and at work sometimes because yeah. But I don't know the flubber and the man pig thing. <laughs> there's a line. Whenever you talk about anything paranormal, there's a line. And I feel like the Lutz family, even Daniel, being, you know, however old he is right now, stating that, you know, hey, these things actually happen. Like, this was... Yeah, I... I feel like it was fueled more by money than it was any in the aftermath of things. I would agree with that. He was too young to actually understand what was happening without it being put in his head. I would agree with that. So. For sure. Well. Yeah. Yeah. This concludes episode 25. In our Halloween series. Yes. You can find us on Twitter. <laughs> you put me on the spot again. Fuck yeah, yeah I did. <laughs> Ten underscore paranormal. No underscore. No. No, no underscore. Just no ten underscore. paranormal. Yes. Oh, there was an underscore. There is in our Instagram. Uh huh. Okay, so our Instagram is ten underscore zero underscore podcast. Mm hmm. And you can find us on Facebook. At ten zero true crimes and paranormal stories from behind the headset. You can also find us on Patreon now if you're feeling generous. Yes. Um. There's four levels to our donations, or you can donate however much you want. That's up to you. There's different um, incentives, I suppose, for each level. Ranging from a shout-out on the podcast to our big decal that's a pain in the ass for us to make, but we'll do it for you. Yes. <laughs> <sighs> I suppose I should, you know, reiterate our contest. Probably. So, if we can reach... Was it 500? Did we up it? No. I don't remember. Okay. Yes, we did. We did up it. There's 750 followers. When did we up it? We added Twitter. Oh. If we can get... Eh, screw it. We'll leave Twitter off. If we get Twitter, that'll be something massive. Like, you will get, like, a hoodie that only two exist of, okay? So, if we get 750 followers, so 250 on every platform, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, we will be doing a giveaway for a 10-0 true crime and paranormal from behind the headset, pain in the ass decal. <laughs> Um, Maria and I are the only ones that have those. Like, our family doesn't even get those. It's They were specifically made for us, so they are very limited edition. Mm-hmm. Um, you want to get one? Share us with your friends. If we hit 500 followers on Facebook and Instagram, so 250 on each, we will be doing a personalized cup, tumbler, however you want to swing it, um, with our decal on it, and our sticker pack, 
probably one of our decals, um, which all of our stickers and decals can be purchased on our website, mm -hmm. which can be found in every description on every page. Um, our stickers I'll be putting up probably this week. Um, actually found decent sticker paper this time. Yeah, I'm kind of excited. Yes. It looks so pretty on the laptop. Yeah. And on the cup. <laughs> but. Also our email. Yes, our email. 10zeropodcast at gmail.com where you can email us your case suggestions or you can email us your personal stories, be them true crime or paranormal, because we really want to start doing listener episodes. Yes. Just saying. So, do that for us. That'd be great. We had our one eyewitness story and story that someone wanted us to cover. And that came from my mom. <laughs> so, can we please, please get some listener stories or something you really want to hear us cover. Anything. And because I haven't said it this episode at all, don't be a garbage man. <laughs> sad like it just hit me that i did not say it at all, at all. jesus christ anyways well stay safe and try not to become the next 10 zero <laughs>